Welcome to the Lead On Podcast. This is Jeff Orge, the president of Gateway Seminary, talking with you once again about practical issues related to ministry leadership. Over the summer, I'm doing a series of podcasts on my book, Seasons of a Leader's Life. Not really on the book, but more from the book, as I select some favorite sections of that book and favorite themes that really mean a lot to me and I think will resonate with you as you think about the practical issues of ministry leadership. Now today, I want to talk about the theme of self-restraint. Self-restraint. Sometimes, uh, the Bible also calls this self-control. And in our culture, we sometimes refer to it as self-discipline. But I've chosen the phrase self-restraint because I really want to focus today on the podcast on what it means for a leader to make the personal decision to restrain themselves in specific areas in which failing to do so can produce difficulty or might even be catastrophic. Now, to set the stage for this idea of showing restraint, I want to take us back to a story near the end of Jesus' life. Jesus was coming near to the crucifixion. He had an all-night prayer meeting, and that meeting culminated with a mob arresting Jesus and taking him into custody. Now, this story is actually told in all four Gospels, which makes it somewhat unique and somewhat significant. Different aspects of the story are mentioned in different Gospels, but nevertheless, all of them mention this particular story. Now, as Jesus was being taken into custody, Peter was outraged and panicky. And you remember what he did. He drew his sword and slashed at the crowd, cutting off the right ear of a man named Malchus, also the high priest's servant. So more than just a bystander, someone who might have even been identified as being a cause or at least a supporter of Jesus's arrest. So, The crowd comes for Jesus. Peter sees what's happening. He won't allow it. He's outraged. He's nervous. He's jittery. He's panicky. (laughs) He pulls out his sword and whacks off the guy's ear. Typical Peter. Impetuous action, trying to solve the wrong problem, the wrong way, at the wrong time, and in the wrong place. Now think about Peter's situation at the moment. He was tired. Uh, These passages tell us that they'd had a fitful, restless night the previous night, so he hadn't slept well. He was probably hungry. Uh, The mob, the Bible says, arrived about daybreak, meaning it was time for breakfast, probably hungry. And then third, it's likely that he was intimidated by what was happening. You know, Jesus had recently predicted his death, and all of that may have been reverberating through Peter's mind as he was thinking about the circumstances that were unfolding right before him. He was tired. He was hungry. He was emotionally engaged. It was time to put a stop to all this, so off with their heads. Well, Jesus' response is significant and instructive. 
Jesus rebuked Peter strongly, restored Malchus's ear, and condemned the violence. You know, in my book, Shadow Christians, I write about this story from a different perspective. I talk about how Jesus was always getting his hands dirty, dealing with hurting people. This time, Jesus reached down on the ground and picked up a bloody ear and stuck it on a stump of flesh and healed it in a miraculous way. What a moment that must have been. Not only were Jesus's words a strong rebuke of Peter, but so were his actions. He told Peter, put away your sword, uh, lest you die by the same sword. And then Jesus asked three rhetorical questions. He asked, do you think that I cannot call on my father and he will provide me at once with more than 12 legions of angels? And then second, how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? And then third, am I not to drink the cup the Father has given me? In asking these questions, Jesus reminded the mob that he had taught openly in the temple many times and had never been arrested. His capture had unfolded in such a way, however, as to fulfill the prophecies about him. So Peter, uh, standing there with the other disciples, made a second rash spur-of-the-moment decision. He deserted Jesus. Now, impetuosity is a common quality of too many leaders. It's especially evident among younger leaders. Many leaders haven't yet learned the discipline of self-restraint. So, in a critical moment, they pull out the sword or they run away. They find it difficult to wait for God's timing, to be patient for the right moment, especially when things don't seem to be moving along as quickly as we want them to. You know, Peter, in that situation, must have thought Jesus' situation was desperate. But Jesus had a very different perspective. Jesus understood God's plan and timing and purpose in the events. And Peter's limited perspective, his physical fatigue, his spiritual dullness, perhaps his hunger, even his impulsive personality, all contributed to his choices, to whip out the sword, and later to flee. Well, no matter the reason, and sometimes there's reasons we can point to that seem justifiable or or, or seem like good excuses, but no matter the reason, when a leader acts impulsively, (laughs) the result is almost always bad. Now, Peter's Dilemma in the Garden of Gethsemane was certainly unique, and I'm not suggesting that we'll ever find ourselves in exactly those situations. But the principle of practicing self-restraint in the face of troubling circumstances, when God seems slow to act and we feel like we need to rush forward and do something dramatic in the moment, 
That principle is still evident and effective today. Now, the Bible also tells us that self-control is more than just something we do on our own. It is actually a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Now, I've always found this to be uh, somewhat paradoxical, that a fruit of the Spirit is self. Let me emphasize that. Self-control. So I'm not sure how exactly this works, but somehow the Holy Spirit works in us to produce a desire and a capacity for us to control ourselves. It's almost like we expect the Bible to call us to spirit control instead of self-control, putting all of the responsibility on God, but not on ourselves. But that's not what, it, what the Bible says. The Bible says we're responsible to practice self-control, meaning that God works in us to give us the capacity to restrain ourselves, to practice self-restraint. Now, practicing self-restraint requires uh, spiritual motivation and very wise personal choices, especially and often under pressure. It's hard, it's hard to hold back. Listen, it's hard to hold back when everything in you wants to lash out or move forward or race ahead. And taking charge of your emotions and measuring your response in those heated moments is essential for effective leadership. Now, the next section of the podcast, let's talk about some areas where leaders must learn and show self-restraint. The first one is that we must show self-restraint in how we express ourselves, especially how we express ourselves verbally or in writing. Now, I know it is so tempting. When someone says something to us or attacks us in some way, it is so tempting to want to give someone a piece of your mind in the moment. (laughs) Let them have it. Say what you feel. Put it all out there. But my experience over and over has been that while it may seem cathartic in the seconds in which you're saying or writing the words, the collateral damage will often diminish your satisfaction. Now, back in the day when I started out in ministry, being careful about what you said or what you wrote usually involved only what you said in a preaching or teaching session or what you might say in a meeting or what you would put in a letter. But as technology has abounded and communication methods have proliferated, it has become so much more important that leaders show self-restraint in what they say and what they write. You know, these days we have email, text messaging, social media. It is so tempting to reply so quickly using some of this media and do so in such a way that ultimately comes back to haunt us. It's easy in these kind of media to say things that we would never say in a face-to-face context, but yet we find ourselves putting out there. It's almost never productive. 
You know, a few years ago, a person wrote me a presumptive email that was critical of my leadership. The message was based on misinformation, outright lies, and uh, some conclusions from his own, I will call it, delusional thinking. As I read this email, it made me mad. So I wrote him back. Quickly, succinctly, directly. I wrote him back in very plain terms, correcting the record and confronting his pompous attitude. He then replied, thank you. I will now post your email on my website. All I could hear when I read that response was, gotcha, <laughs> gotcha. He had baited the trap. I had walked into it and sprung the lever. Like an animal lured to capture, I had fallen for the gambit and responded in a way that led to further attack on me. It would be better, far better, to have practiced self-restraint with this irrational critic. A limited response or maybe even no response at all would have been more appropriate. Now, it would have been less satisfying in the moment, to be sure, but it was also would have been less damaging in the long run. You know, it's really hard to hold back when someone says or writes something about you that's either not true or partially true or shaped or twisted in such a way that it makes you look bad or harms you or your family or the people you love or maybe hurts the ministry organization where you lead. It is so hard not to respond quickly, definitively, and oftentimes with anger. But having done this now for a few years, let me assure you that showing restraint in these contexts is vital to your effectiveness as a ministry leader. I have written a number of emails, but before I hit send, I hit delete. I've written some other letters and other communication that I print out, put in a file drawer. I've learned to process some of these responses, get them out of my system, if I can say it that way, without actually sending them. And by doing this, saved myself a significant amount of grief, turmoil, and difficulty as people respond back to me and as they spring the trap and say, gotcha. Now, this raises a question. Does a leader have to respond to every letter, every email, or every communication? And the answer to that is no. Now, I've made it a practice over the years to respond to communication, but sometimes all I'll say is, I've received your letter and will consider what you've had to say. No valuative judgment on the letter itself, just an acknowledgement that I have it in hand. 
So, yes, we are tempted to respond. We may want to give a response, but we want to avoid inflammatory response and instead practice self-restraint. Here's a second area. Leaders must learn self-restraint in decision-making. When you're a leader, it's so tempting to plow ahead, even when God puts up stop or yield signs to direct us. A big area that I see churches and leaders making mistakes in decision-making is related to money, and especially related to borrowing money to build buildings or otherwise expand ministries or enlarge facilities. Now, let me hasten to say that borrowing is not always wrong, but it's something that should be done carefully, in a very limited way, and with assurance that it can be repaid, at least as much as that assurance can be achieved. A lot of churches and leaders, however, rather than waiting on God's provision, they rush ahead and borrow and build and hope that the people attracted by the buildings pay them off. Well, that's good in theory, but it doesn't always work out quite that way. It's a good strategy to do this unless something unexpected happens. I'm familiar with one story, for example, where a church had a moral failure by a staff pastor just after borrowing several million dollars. Now, while the lead pastor was not at fault in the moral failure, the damage done impacted the church in very significant way, leading to large numbers of people leaving the church. When that happened, the church began to decline numerically, began to suffer financially, and ultimately had to default on its loan. And because it was a bond program, default on hundreds of investors. Now, let me again hasten to say that not all borrowing is wrong. That's not what the podcast is about. The podcast is about showing restraint, about not rushing ahead, about having the self-control and the personal discipline to wait and to even wait when it impacts organizational decision-making. Now, there's other areas besides communication and decision-making. Let me give you some just simple examples, like, for example, self-restraint in supervising others, particularly supervising an assistant. You know, over the years, I've had remarkable assistants, and One of the things that's true about them is they keep getting younger all the time. Of course, I'm not getting older. Let's don't go there. But my assistants keep getting younger all the time. And I have to practice self-restraint because sometimes I think of them almost like my children who are about their same age. But I have to remind myself, these these are not my children. They're they're not my family. They're, They're my employees. And while I want to be friendly and winsome and engaging with them, I also have to remember to show proper self-restraint to maintain the proper decorum, the proper respect, and the proper behaviors in those relationships. Another area of self-restraint is in managing your expense account. 
If you're a leader in almost any organization, you have some access to resources, either for expenses that you spend in doing your job or expenses that you incur on behalf of the organization or the church in doing its job. You have the capacity to use money in some kind of discretionary uh, means or discretionary format. It requires self-restraint. You know, I can tell a lot by a person's expense account by seeing the restaurants where they eat and the places where they stay and the activities that they're involved in while they're on the road. Self-restraint means that you make good choices to be a good steward of the resources at hand and not use your position or your privilege to, so to speak, feather your own nest, make yourself look good, uh, do uh, what you want or what you think is best for you, but instead to only make expenditures which are for the good or benefit of the organization. Another one is self-restraint in your work environment. I'm sometimes surprised when I go into work environments of different leaders to see how disheveled they are, how much garbage is piled around, how many uh, books are sitting out of on the floor, how many stacks of papers have not yet been read, food wrappers, uh, empty coffee mugs, these kinds of things. Now, again, this podcast isn't about neatness or cleanliness. It's about self-restraint. It's about showing respect for your workspace and the people who work around you so that you communicate by the self-control you you demonstrate the value that you have on the place that's provided for you to work and the kind of professionalism that you bring to the task and that you want demonstrated in your workspace. So the theme today is self-restraint. And I've given you an example from the Bible, Peter, of someone who failed in this matter in a pretty significant way in a crucial moment near the end of Jesus's life. Well, self-restraint, the capacity to limit yourself, to not react emotionally in every moment, but to instead have spirit-produced self-control in choosing the behaviors that you'll demonstrate in crucial areas, like how you express yourself verbally and in writing, like how you make decisions and the pace that you go about decision-making in organizations, like supervising an assistant or other persons that you're responsible to direct and maintaining right relationships with them, like Managing your expense account or other resources made available to you in the organization so that you have a sense of doing that with decorum and limit. And then, of course, managing your workspace so that you use it appropriately and it represents the kind of professionalism and orderliness you bring to your work. Now, in all of these areas, leaders have privileges, and it's so easy to manipulate these circumstances to our advantage. I know making self-limiting choices is difficult. There's an old saying, rank has its privileges. And frankly, there's a little bit of truth to that. Rank does have its privileges. But wise leaders know that rank has more responsibility than it has privileges. And our focus is not so much on taking advantage of the privileges as disciplining ourselves to show restraint in fulfilling our responsibilities. 
Now, let's close out the podcast by talking about how you can develop more self-restraint. Step one, recognize that self-control is a Holy Spirit-produced character quality. Entitlement isn't a fruit of the Spirit. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. Entitlement is not the purview of leaders. The opposite is actually true. You are responsible to model self-control. In the face of so much pressure, particularly peer pressure, tempting you otherwise, and you model the self-control to show consistent discipline as a spirit-controlled leader. When you do this, your followers will appreciate your spiritual maturity and the growing evidence of God's activity in your life that this will demonstrate. So seek self-control as a spirit-produced quality meaning that you pray and ask the Holy Spirit to produce self-control in you, that you trust in the Holy Spirit's power to bring you self-control in moments of difficulty, temptation, or distraction. You focus on achieving this, not in your own effort, but as a spiritual discipline and response. Another step toward self-restraint is learning to talk less and to speak more carefully. Now, I've already mentioned that this is a problem area for us in leadership, so how do you learn to do better in this particular area? Well, the first thing I do is allow some time to go between when I write something and when I publish it or send it out. For example, I write a weekly blog, and I typically write it uh, in the afternoon or evening, and then come back the next day and reread it and edit it before I publish it. And it is amazing how an overnight reflection on a blog will change it, shape it, or make it better. And particularly if I'm going to blog about something that's difficult or controversial or might cause some emotional response, it's important that I have that cooling off time myself so that I write it and then reflect on it and then rewrite it so that I, if I do say something controversial, can be sure that I've done that intentionally and by design, not just as a spur-of-the-moment expression or frustration. You know, I've also learned along the way that I just don't have to talk about everything. As I'm fond of saying, nobody cares if I had a ham sandwich for lunch. I don't need to tweet that. I just don't need to talk about everything. Leaders recognize that a little bit of right communication goes a long way. And simply filling up the airway with words is not a way to gain influence. Leaders also know that we almost never have to apologize or clean up the damage from something we did not say. We almost never have to apologize or clean up the damage for something we did not say. And so it's important to learn to just simply talk less and to make the decision that we're not going to feel obligated to express ourselves on every issue, every subject, or every uh, 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 problem that comes along. Also, in terms of self-restraint and communication, remember that venting 
through emotionally laden, harsh words, venting seldom produces lasting leadership results. Now, we have a little internal joke here at Gateway that one of the jobs of the vice presidents is to listen to my rantings. They let me vent, and you should be very glad they do. Because by getting some of that out of me, so to speak, in that small group setting or even in a one-on-one context, I'm able to release some of this emotional pressure that builds up inside every leader while at the same time listening to myself, doing some self-reflection, doing some self-editing, and then when I'm ready to speak in a broader context, speaking much more eloquently, in a more measured way, and in a much more effective way. So find a place to vent or find someone to vent with and make it someone other than your spouse because, quite frankly, they probably are a little worn out if they're the only one that you ever talk to in this way. Self-restraint means that you learn you don't have to say something about every issue. When you do say something, you want to say it without the antagonism and anger that often marks our words. And it's okay to find someone to vent to, to shape what you're going to say and think it through before you actually go there. Well, controlling yourself, controlling yourself in decision-making, controlling yourself in what you say, controlling yourself as a spirit-controlled asset, all of these things reflect on our need for self-restraint. You're a leader. You have a lot of privilege. You're given a lot of freedom. You may not have very close supervision. For all these reasons, you must learn the discipline of self-restraint, self-limitation, self-control. It's a spirit-produced asset. It's an essential ingredient for effective leadership. Put it into practice this week as you lead on.